0: Hi everyone, Dr. Edith here. Earlier this year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released its first guidelines in over 15 years on how to diagnose and treat childhood obesity. And while they were welcomed and celebrated by many, they also generated controversy and faced backlash in part because pieces of the recommendations were taken out of context. And this was done, in my personal opinion, to scare parents. Here are some of that scary discourse you might have heard on the news.
1: The American Academy of Pediatrics is now pushing pills or even surgery to help obese children shed pounds. Anyone who's tried to lose weight, you can speak to this directly, knows stop eating a lot of sugary food and you'll probably lose weight. But that's not the guidance.
0: Today, we're hitting rewind. We're bringing the context back into the conversation and we're gonna catch you up on what's actually in these recommendations and what's happened since. From Columbia University Children's Health in New York, you are listening to the Stuff That Matters for Kids' Health. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho-Sanchez. I am a new mama who also happens to be a pediatrician, and I want to personally invite you to join me in talking to some of the most brilliant minds of our time as I ask them, what are the things that really matter today for our kids to turn out okay? Okay. For today's show, I sat down with my colleague, Dr. John Roush, a general pediatrician and pediatric obesity expert here at Columbia, to talk about what's in the new guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of obesity, why the controversy happened, and what's next for kids and their families. Very quickly, remember the content on this podcast is provided for general information only and should not be relied on as a substitute for any professional medical advice or treatment. The views shared on the show solely reflect the expertise and experience of me, your host, and our guests. Anyway, here's my chat with Dr. John Rausch. Enjoy. John, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: I am so excited to talk to you. We work together. But for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your day job. What does it really mean to be a pediatric obesity expert?
1: Absolutely. Well, I am one of many of the breed of obesity medicine specialists. We are a diverse group of people that all have training in the very common disease, a chronic disease of childhood obesity or obesity in general. And that can be pediatricians like myself, general pediatricians. It can be specialists, endocrinologists, or gastroenterologist. It can be internists, obviously, for adults. It can be OBGYNs that have this specialized training. So anyone who requires a specialized training in terms of obesity and the care of children or adults with obesity is considered an obesity medicine specialist.
0: Perfect. And obesity has unfortunately become so common that it is now so important to have people like you who are able to really, really help children and families and, of course, adults as well. But today we're talking about kids. So, John, let's get right to these guidelines, which are really the reason I asked you to come in and talk with me today, starting with the why. John, why did the American Academy of Pediatrics issue these guidelines and why did they issue them now?
1: It's because we have so much new evidence. The last set of, we call them recommendations, was in 2007. And the reason they were recommendations and not clinical practice guidelines is because for the most part they were recommendations. There wasn't enough evidence to really give clear guidelines, so people gave their expert opinion. Now we have an abundance of new evidence out there, so we have to, we had to actually reconsider what we were talking about and actually create formal guidelines. So it's because there's so much new evidence out there.
0: And I think this is interesting, and people may not realize this, but because there's so many new studies, we've gone from recommendations to guidelines, which is a step further. And John, what is happening as a whole in our communities, in our country, when it comes to obesity? Because I think on the one hand you as the obesity experts and your colleagues had so many new studies and data to draw from to make really strong guidelines. And on the other hand, I think the moment is also such that we are in a really tough place, in a tough moment when it comes to obesity in our country. So what's happening?
1: Well, unfortunately, we've seen a continuation of the obesity epidemic becoming an epidemic. And this is because over the last 40 years, we've seen dramatic increases in obesity. We're talking about in the 1990s, uh, adult obesity rates of about 10 to 20%. And now we're talking by 2050, half of the adult population having obesity. And at the same time, obesity rates in children have gotten dramatically higher. We've seen double or tripling the rates of childhood obesity depending on your age group. So these are dramatic increases in obesity.
0: John. I know I'm going to ask you a loaded question. I always like to give people warning when I'm going to ask a loaded question, but it's something I really wonder about. And I think about this in my day to day as a primary care pediatrician. I think about this as a mom a lot. How did things get so bad?
1: Well, that is a loaded question. And if we really had, it's a, a million dollar question. But it's the, the, the answer is it's complex. Obesity is a complex illness. And I think we're just beginning to understand the genetics behind obesity. And so our bodies are triggered to keep any excess weight that we can on. And then when you put that within an obesogenic environment, as we like to say, where kids are not exercising as much as they once did, they're spending much more time on sedentary activities like on phones and tablets and in front of any kind of screen. When you talk about kids not feeling safe to go outside and have safe places to play, when you're talking about a food industry that promotes really processed food at the expense of natural food, you're really talking about the perfect storm for then the genetics to then keep all that weight on. So really, our environment and the encounters that we have with the environment have changed dramatically over the last 40 years.
0: There's so many things in what you just said, but something that I find really interesting, and I'm learning more myself as a primary care pediatrician, is how the environment can turn on those genes, right? So perhaps these are not necessarily new genes, right? People in the in the 1940s, 1950s had the same genes as they do today, but the environment wasn't such that those genes were triggered to then make their bodies retain all that weight. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I mean, we know that, for example, when you're eating two to three times the calories for the average meal that we were in the 1940s or 50s, that you're just consuming more calories. And when you do that and your body then maintains that weight, we know that losing weight and keeping it off is really the hardest thing to do because the body wants to keep that weight on. So it's really the environment that's changed and it's really our relationship with the environment that's changed. Our genes haven't changed, but the environment has changed.
0: It's really, I mean, we could talk about that for hours because it's fascinating, but I really want to get to the reason we're having these conversations. What's now become the famous 100-page document. It is long. It is long. And I say it like that because it really, you know, it caught the attention of many people just how long it was. So tell us, what does it say? What are these recommendations in this document?
1: Absolutely. Well, as I said before, you know, we really are trying as a organization of, of pediatricians and obesity specialists to move more toward guidelines. And so what it really says is it creates guidelines that are evidence based that really can help with both obesity assessment and obesity treatment for children it also as a background really understands and that obesity is such a complex illness and disease that there are many factors that are related to obesity i think it goes into quite a bit that racism can help stimulate obesity that discrimination can help stimulate and can help promote unfortunately obesity that there are many other social economic and cultural factors that can lead to obesity. So it really goes into quite a bit of that in its background. And I think that's very important, that weight stigma, that the way that we treat and the way that we interact with our children can help promote obesity. So it really does a bit about going into that. And then it gets into these guidelines specifically about assessment and treatment.
0: So right off the bat, the documents and the pediatricians behind the document, right? Because we have to remember this wasn't a magical document that appeared. It no. was it was a lot of work mm-hmm. by a lot of pediatricians who have been following and studying this for a long time. And right off the bat, they are reframing the way that we have thought about obesity. Yes. They're saying it is not a person's fault or a Absolutely. child's fault, right? Absolutely. They're saying there's so many factors that might play into how or why or if a person develops obesity. And then from there, with that acknowledgement, with the acknowledgement of how complex of an issue of an illness it is, then it goes into the recommendations. So tell us about the specific guidelines that this document is setting out for pediatricians. What are they telling us to do?
1: Well, we know that in terms of assessment, we, we should be doing a full comprehensive assessment of children with obesity and all of the comorbidities that we know are related to obesity. I like mean that, what, John? Tell us more. Absolutely. That's, that's type 2 diabetes. That's insulin resistance, which we are unfortunately seeing so much more and so much early in our children right now. It means fatty liver disease, where you actually can have ultimately fibrosis of the liver and actually liver failure in, in some patients. Mm. It's not common, but it certainly happens. We're we're talking about dyslipidemia, meaning the lipid levels get very high and that can lead to heart attacks and strokes later on. We're talking about hypertension or high blood pressure. We're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, which is where kids can't actually breathe at night and actually can stop breathing at night and which can contribute to cardiovascular disease and other problems. Uh, we're talking about polycystic ovary syndrome. We're talking the, the list goes on and on. There's so many different comorbidities that are related, unfortunately, with obesity. And
0: of course, the point is not to scare parents. The point is to share a little bit about what pediatricians are now urged. They're now being asked by this giant academy, right, to look for. So on the one hand, we're diagnosing obesity. On the other hand, it's telling us, you better start looking for these things because they're happening more often in children. And. It's a long list and it's a scary list, but parents need to know that we are looking for those things because, gosh, if we miss them, the consequences, the consequences later on in life. So to go back just a step, how are we exactly now urged to diagnose obesity?
1: It is still using the body mass index. And I know there's a lot of controversy about this body mass index, which Mm is weight divided by height in kilometers squared. It's an old method. It's certainly not perfect. And I know that, you know, there are other methods we can use, but it's the easiest method to use. And it actually is pretty well correlated with later comorbidities. So it's still using this BMI or body mass index.
0: So how much should a child weigh depending on their age and how tall they are?
1: Right. It's all based on percentages because with adults, it's very easy. You have a set number. A BMI of 30 is obesity. With children, it's BMI changes quite dramatically throughout their childhood and through adolescence. So it's by percentage. And so kids should be less than the 95th percentile for their age and their height.
0: And how early, John, are we starting to screen for obesity? How early are we making this diagnosis based on the BMI?
1: I mean, unfortunately, we can see kids gaining excess weight almost immediately in the first year of life. We only have BMI standards that we use generally in the office at about the age of two, but certainly even before the age of two, we're we're seeing kids gain excess weight. So it's very early on. We're talking about pretty much right when they're coming to us and not far after, after birth even.
0: And, you know, I have to ask you a little Mm -hmm. bit about what caught the attention of so many members of the Mm -hmm. media and so many parents. And it's the additional recommendation to potentially use medications and even refer to surgery Mm -hmm. for teens who are obese. Tell us a little bit more about what really, really the recommendation is.
1: Absolutely. Well, there are, are kind of four buckets of treatment that are mentioned here. And just to go through them in a little bit more detail, the first is motivational interviewing. And that's just a way of talking that all pediatricians and actually all providers can use to really get the motivation to change or to be live a healthier life out from the patient and the parents themselves. And that's something that has led to good results and has good evidence behind it. And that's one thing that all pediatricians can do. So that's one thing. The next thing is what we call intensive health behavior lifestyle interventions. It's kind of a longer term that they used here, but it really means a multidisciplinary effort to really help kids change their eating habits and their physical activity. And that's been something that has had good evidence for it. We now know from the United States Preventative Task Force for a number of years. But this is a very intensive effort. We're not talking about seeing a doctor and and talking about some changes once, you know, every six months or so. We're talking about 26 contact hours. And that's something that's very hard for pediatricians to do. That's very hard for parents to do. It's very hard for kids to do. So this is very intensive lifestyle interventions, and it's not really paid for by anyone. So part of the guidelines, I think, are are an advocacy effort to get the government and to get insurers to actually pay for this kind of intervention.
0: So the first half is saying, for everyone, Mm -hmm. your doctor should be speaking in a way that motivates you to have a your relationship with food and with your body and with exercise and and to make a couple of changes that lead to a healthier lifestyle. For people who perhaps that doesn't work or perhaps at the same time when possible, Mm -hmm. it's also saying involve other people and do sort of an intense treatment, bringing on nutritionists, social workers, et cetera. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. What we're saying is kind of watchful waiting. In the past, we used to have this staged approach, which again, let me tell you, was not evidence based. It was kind of recommendation based we know that that just doesn't work that these kids ultimately are not going to lose the weight with this method so we offer all of the armamentarium that we have and for it'll be different for different kids and certainly we're not pushing anything upon kids and and the basis for everything that we do are lifestyle changes mm-hmm. but for some kids it'll be a little bit more than that there are some kids that will require medication and that's something that can be offered as at the same time that we're offering lifestyle interventions. And we have very good evidence now that medications are safe and effective. It can be surgery for some of our kids who have severe obesity, who are already suffering for the most part from comorbidities and who may need extra help losing weight. And nobody takes any of these decisions lightly. And this is not for everybody. This is a very tailored approach, but these are all part of our armamentarium, of our toolbox that we can offer to parents.
0: You know, John, I minute ask you a question that i've been asked before by people who don't necessarily work in this field people who don't see how hard it is to lose weight i mean it's it's really really hard and the question is when you give or when you offer a teenager surgery isn't that a lifelong change and aren't you changing their metabolism their body for the rest of their lives what do you say to people who have this concern
1: Absolutely. This is a lifelong change, and this is not something to go into without having thought about it and considered it and done quite a bit of thought process beforehand and evaluation beforehand. We are changing people's bodies for their life, and certainly because, unfortunately, obesity is a chronic disease, and we know that if you treat obesity and you get the weight off, that there's a set point of body mass that, that the body wants to get to. So if you stop that treatment, for example, with medications, that the large majority of kids actually gain that weight back. So this is a chronic illness. Bariatric surgery is, a, is chronically changing the way that your body absorbs food, it, your metabolized food. So yes, it is a chronic thing, and it's something that parents need to know, just like we're talking about high blood pressure or diabetes. This is a chronic illness that will be with you for the rest of your life. And so some, some of the treatments that we're offering are chronic treatments that will be with you for the rest of your life.
0: So what you're saying is, yes, this is a lifelong yes. change. But obesity is a lifelong condition as well. And so the treatment for it has to be a lifelong change, whatever that looks like for Mm -hmm. your child or your teen in partnership with your pediatrician who knows you
1: well. And that is a hard thing for some parents to accept. And I certainly understand that, you know, as a parent myself, as someone who has been in this field for a while. But it's the offer and the recommendations and the the guidelines that we have to offer parents. And we work, again, one-on-one with parents in this realm.
0: Now, John, you know I have to ask mm-hmm. you about the backlash. And listen, I'm going to be candid for a moment, right? We're going to drop our our super professional talk to her faces, and I'm going to be super candid for a moment. I love some good television. I love some drama. I love some tea. What I don't like, however, is when health information is turned into this drama and the story just for the sake of either scaring people or getting them to click or getting them to watch, right? Because I think that hurts people when we treat health information like we're talking about reality TV and we start to pit people against each other. Not cool. So before I continue on my rant (laughs) of how I feel about this, catch people up for people who may not have been following this. What happened? What was the backlash?
1: Absolutely. I think there is, is certainly been a backlash and certainly I understand people's concerns in any area when we talk about treating children and particularly when we're talking about treating children for a lifetime with medications and surgery. But there was a, quite a concern that we're medicalizing obesity and that we are making it into a disease and that this concern that we are then offering medications, again, that are going to be given to children for the rest of their lives or that we are doing surgery that are going to affect children for the rest of their lives So that was one area that parents and other professionals as well were concerned about. And another big area came from the eating disorder community that there is concern, and I think everybody who treats children with obesity is very concerned about eating disorders, but that we may be pushing children toward eating disorders as well. So I think those were two of the bigger areas of concern that were out there.
0: Mm -hmm. And the minute people expressed their concerns, it was like the media just took it and ran with it. (laughs) was again pitting people against each other, which I didn't appreciate. I'm just gonna say, just didn't appreciate it. But I do have to ask you, John, is there any validity? Is there any truth to some of these concerns? And to be specific, do you worry that aggressively diagnosing and quote unquote labeling obesity will add to the stigma that many kids and teens and their families already deal with?
1: It's something that I worry about in the office every day and I think that all of us individuals who treat children and adults with obesity, for that matter, are very concerned about. I think we all share that concern, and certainly uh, it's something that we think about in the words that we use when we talk to people in the way that we communicate with our patients. So absolutely, we're concerned about that. I think that weight stigma has been a part of the medicalized community for a long time now and has done quite a bit of harm, unfortunately. And I think these guidelines go in great detail and really set the stage for this idea that we can't stigmatize people about their weight. We can't blame people for their biological and other factor-driven weight gain. So I think that we're all actually on the same page in that area that weight stigma is bad. Weight stigma is horrible. Weight stigma makes people not lose weight. Weight stigma makes people stay away from healthcare. Weight stigma makes people get depressed. Weight stigma makes people gain more weight. Weight stigma is horrible. Let me just say that in all words. It does not help people lose weight. Weight stigma is bad and we are all very concerned about it. And I think that we all think about this. And let me just make a note on language. I say that I'm talking a lot about obesity here. I don't use the word obesity in my office. I talk about weight gain that is unhealthy for how tall you are or more weight gain than we think is healthy. We talk about health. And I really center my discussions in in the room around families around health. Everything is based on health. And I, I think you can do that and still try to then help kids to stabilize their weight or lose weight by really focusing more on health than anything else. And it's also people first language, I think is something that is not utilized enough. We're talking not about obese children, we're talking about children with obesity or children living with obesity. And the way in which we mention these things and the way in which we talk to our patients is very important and it's not trivial. So absolutely, I think that we are all very concerned about these things in our office. And I think in some ways we're all on the same page that we cannot increase weight stigma. And I don't think that these guidelines are aimed at increasing weight stigma in any way. And if I can just mention one more thing is that the, the vast majority of these studies show that when you have really good intensive behavioral lifestyle changes, in fact, a weight disordered eating goes down so that when you approach this in the right way, for the most part, most kids actually have a decrease in some of those attitudes or those some of those thoughts. So you can actually make things better by some of this treatment, but we are all very concerned about that when we're treating. So those are all very fair concerns and certainly something that we are all very concerned about. And dealing with in the office.
0: And I'll just say that, you know, we're truly fortunate to have you here at Columbia University Children's Health because you have taught us how to talk about these things. You have really, really taken it upon yourself to educate the rest of us pediatricians so that we don't do harm and so that we actually help families in the way that we talk about this. So we're really, really lucky to have you. And I think this point that you mentioned of actually decreasing eating disorders and what's called disordered eating, when you do this well, is so important because I know the eating disorder community had a number of concerns about these guidelines, right?
1: Absolutely. And again, we all share the same concerns. None of us in the weight management world want to make or create eating disorders, So I think we are all very aware of the way in which we speak to our patients, and we're all very aware that we should be screening for eating disorders when there's any concern. So absolutely, that's something that we're very concerned about. But the large majority of the evidence shows, and the guidelines say this, is that when done well and when done in a non-stigmatizing way, that you can actually decrease eating disordered behavior and eating disorders.
0: John, and I'm going to ask you one more thing about this controversy, and then I promise we're going to drop it and move on. You've talked about this, but I want you to address it head on. For the people who still think, just eat a little less sugar or just exercise a little more, and there are many of those people, including people with very large platforms, talking about it in this way, my question is, are we, the pediatricians, making this more complicated than it needs to be?
1: The answer is no we are not. The disease of obesity is very complex. And anyone who says that really doesn't understand the disease of obesity. The disease of obesity is a complex metabolic interaction in the body. We know that once you gain weight, there are certain set points that are created where the body really wants to hang on to that weight. So it's not just about eating less and exercising more. That really puts all of the emphasis on the patient. That puts all of the emphasis on the individual and says that it's their basically fault. It's their responsibility to do this. If that were the case, people would have lost weight a long time ago. We know that this is not a personal responsibility. We know that this is a very complex disease. It's just why the American Medical Association and many countries have declared this as a disease. It's why we're working to really call this a disease. Is because we know that this is not a personal failing. It's not a personal responsibility. It's not simply about losing weight by exercising more and by eating less. It really is a very complex illness that requires medications in some cases, requires treatment, very intensive treatment in order to make these changes, as well as in some cases, it does require surgery for those kids who are carrying a lot of excess weight.
0: As one of many tools as we discussed. So John, then to wrap this up, how is this playing out in the real world, in real life with people that are coming to see their pediatricians? Are pediatricians currently embracing these guidelines? Are they implementing these guidelines? Tell us what's going on.
1: Well, I can tell you, I I had a meeting last night with a number of obesity medicine people from across New York, and there's a great frustration with the idea that there are some parents that want nothing to do with medications, which is fine. There are some parents who do want access to medications now that they are are FDA approved, but they're not being paid for, for the most part, by insurance. Mm -hmm. So we really need to be better advocates that we actually get this care that we know is evidence-based. That we know actually has a grade B recommendation from the United States Preventive Task Force, and by law is supposed to be covered and is not being covered is covered, that these medications are covered, that the surgery when individuals qualify for it and want it is available to our adolescents. So I think the biggest part right now is really getting better advocacy and really getting better coverage for these things so we can actually offer them to people when they come to our doors. Every day I I receive a phone call or a message from someone asking me where to send someone who's really at wit's end dealing with obesity. And unfortunately, we have very few options out there because we just don't have many programs that are paid for. And so I think it's more frustration right now than anything and really a real impetus to try to advocate for coverage so that we can actually offer these evidence-based effective treatments to our patients.
0: Right. John, thank you so much for coming in today.
1: Absolutely. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you at home for joining me on the stuff that matters for kids health podcast. If you liked our show, make sure to tune back in next week to leave us a rating and review and to help us spread the word about our show. That's right. We'd love it. If you could tell a parent, friend, IRL in real life, or just drop a link on your group chat. We'll take that too. You can also find us and more information on kids health on our social media channels at kids at Columbia. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho-Sanchez in New York, and I'll see you next time.